got a Bible, turn to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. We're getting near to the end of our series, so I'm, I'm beginning to get nostalgic and miss it already. We're going to be in chapter 35 today. Uh, I, thought, I thought about telling a joke of, listen, you know, we're studying the people of God in the desert in the Sinai Peninsula, and so I thought, listen, we can handle this if they can handle the desert. So I looked up how hot it was currently where most uh, scholars believe Mount Sinai was, and it's only 81 degrees. So <laughs> y- y'all are legit, so don't, don't feel bad about yourselves. Okay, if this is a little much. It's only 20% humidity there as well. So we're doing it. We're doing it because we love the Lord, and we want to celebrate these new children that God has brought into our midst in this new life, so it's fantastic. Uh, so here we go. Today, what we're going to be looking at is God making ends meet. So we've been talking, if you've been tracking with us, if not, just you'll, you'll kind of pick it up. God has moved his people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, not just for freedom, but for something else, which we've said is his presence and his worship. So one end of the spectrum is God moving his people out, and then we've always said he's going to move them in to something. And what we'll find out today is the how behind God making these two ends meet, at least part of the how. And, and this part of the how is the same for us today as it is for the people of Israel 3,500 years ago. And that is, how do these two ends meet? Through partnership. Through partnership. So we're going to look at that today, which is what I call the joy of partnership. So think of a small child, or medium-sized child, or a large child, or a 70-year-old child. It's actually all the same for any kind of child. But when mom or dad asks the child to do something with them, to help them with a project... Something beautiful happens. So my son, Grayson, six years old now, he loves to bake, he loves to garden, and he even helped me rebuild our fence. Now here's the deal. His help didn't make it go faster, didn't make it better. Fence is a little crooked. Cookies have a little bit too much baking soda. But you press through, you eat it, because you know he's excited. Now, here's the deal. What we experience, even though it's not faster or better, is so much greater than efficiency, than even perfection, which is the joy of partnership. When I do things with Grayson, or Grayson does things with his mom, there is a mutual benefit, a mutual joy. He experiences great joy that mom and dad have asked him to do a project. And then mom and dad feel this great joy in getting to partner with their son to do something meaningful in the world. It's beautiful. The same phenomenon happens with God. The very same thing happens between God and us. God has chosen a fabric for his plan of salvation that requires partnership with humanity. It's a little boomy here, young Ben. getting a little feedback. So the same phenomenon is true. God has chosen this fabric that he's chosen to live out His plan for salvation includes this partnership. Why? Because there's joy in partnership. Today we're going to read about the building of the tabernacle, this long-awaited process, this building of the tabernacle. 
And we're going to see that God invites his people to partner with him. Again, not because he needs us or he needed them. God spoke and put the stars and the galaxies in the heavens. He doesn't have trouble building a tent. He could build a tent if he wanted to. But because he loves us, he invites us in. And this is so counterintuitive. And it, it's really, it's a reality that we get, right? It's, it's the difference between the for and the with. So our brain tells us, I would really prefer if someone did something for me. Just gave me something, did something. But then when we look back on our life, and we do an accounting of our experience, what we realize is when someone asks me to do something with them, those are the memories that really stick out. Those are the things where we felt the most life. So it's a bit counterintuitive. But when we look back, we know this is true. This is the divinely inspired part of life. This is the divinely inspired joy of partnership. And it's all rooted in the very nature of God. I'm not going to get into it. But Christianity, the Bible, teaches, proclaims that God is, yes, one, but in three persons. So that's the three-in-oneness of God, which is, means from eternity past through eternity future, God in himself has this interpersonal relationship. So he has the joy of partnership, even within his own being. And he wants to share that with us. Okay? So we're going to see that today. So let me get you up to speed. So you can see how this flow of the narrative is going. 400 plus years in Egypt, most of which is in servitude and slavery. Moses is then called, the prophet Moses who writes the book of Exodus, is then called to be the leader of an exodus from this slavery. God supernaturally intervenes. We read about that, we talked about this, and he forces the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, forces his hand, and Pharaoh lets the people go. They cross the Red, the Red Sea and they end up in the Sinai Peninsula, at Mount Sinai. This is in the Arabian Desert. And, and God there gives the people ten commands, ten words to say, this is what I want you to found this new society around, and, and when you follow these, you stay in this covenant relationship with me. So Moses then goes up to receive more commands and details about this law up to the top of the mountain, and he's gone for 40 days, and the people grow restless and they wonder if Moses is dead, and they rebel, and they create an image breaking the first and second law that God has just given them. They turn to their own wisdom, their own ways, and Moses comes down the mountain. God is angry. Moses is angry. He breaks the tablets. The covenant is symbolically broken, and God considers, should I abandon these people? They can't even make it 40 days in this covenant relationship. Then God's love overrides his feelings. He chooses to act towards them with hesed, loving kindness, and he says, I will recommit to this people. But he tells Moses, Ryan talked about this last week, that for now you need to set up the tent of meeting while I will meet with you, Moses, far outside the camp, meaning the people do not get the pleasure and the profound joy of being near to the presence of God. The tent of meeting is far away. And then God calls Moses back up the mountain where he is going to receive the, the commands again, put them on new tablets of stone. That's, that's where we pick up the story. But it's so important to see here right now, we're not all the way to the end that we so hope and desire for because the tent of meeting is far off. 
And we saw last week that God's presence is accessible to Moses. Moses is literally, his face is radiant and shining because he's been speaking to God face to face. And people can see it, and he has to wear a veil over his face. So he has access, but not all people have access. So the ends have not yet met. So how will that change? We'll see in the text today how that works. So pick it up with me. We're actually going to overlap a little bit with last week, just in case you weren't here, so you can hear where we are coming from. So this is in chapter 34, verse 29. We should have that up on the screen for you as well. There we go. Okay. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of, the fa- of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to Moses, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, this is in the tent of meeting that's far outside the camp, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he had was commanded, and the people of Israel would see that the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, verse, uh, chapter 35, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in your dwelling place on the Sabbath day. Go back. You can see a whole sermon on the Sabbath. Try to understand that. Verse 4, Moses Then said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breast piece. These are all things that Ben talked about a few weeks ago that were needed in the blueprints for the tabernacle, which is God's tent, which was meant to be in the middle of the city. So what Moses is saying is God's back on board. He wants to move in. It's time to build the tabernacle in the middle of the people so everyone has access. Verse 10, let every skillful craftsman among you come and and make all that the Lord has commanded. So it's not just giving of your things, it's giving of your skills. Whoever has skill, let let them use it for the glory of God. So the tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its hooks, its frames, its bars, its pillars, its bases, its the ark and its poles, its mercy seat, the veil of the screen, the table and the poles and all of its utensils, the bread of the presence, the, the lampstand also in its light with its utensils and its lamps, its oil for the light and the altar and the incense with its poles and anointing oil, fragrant incense, screen for the door, at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of the burnt offering with, uh, with its grating of its bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basins and its stands, the hanging of the court, the pillars. Next page. And its bases, the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs for the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, there are the cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the garments of Aaron and the priests, and the garments of his sons for the service of the priest. Then all the congregation of the people 
departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought, to, brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all of its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings, signet rings, armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linens and goat hairs, tanned ram skins, goat skins, brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had, what they'd spun in purple and blue and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod of the breastpiece and the spices and the oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women... The people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. This is the Word of God. Amazing. This is a people who just previously rebelled. But now they realize the error of their ways. They realize who the one true God is, and they come freely to give. So let's dig in now. How does this big last move happen, this partnership? It happens because the generous hearts and hands of God's people bring the presence of God into the midst of the community, making his presence accessible to all. And how does it begin? How does all of this last move to make ends meet, how does it all begin? It begins with Moses' unselfishness. Moses had it. Dude had shiny face, talking to God. God even said, Moses, I'll start a whole new people with you. But Moses was unselfish. This is Sedaris Principle 14. We have 14 principles at Sedaris. You can find them on our website. Number 14, the last principle is to be a bridge, also known as pass it on. Moses didn't keep his privilege for himself, but he used it to bridge the presence of God to his community. You see that? That is a profound unselfishness, but it's not just unselfishness, it's also generosity. Unselfishness moves to generosity. They're not identical qualities. This is so important. Somebody in the room needs to hear this today. Perhaps they're necessarily related, but they're not identical. Just like not being a turd is not the same as being loving, so unselfishness is not the same as generosity. Love is not about what you don't do. Love is about what you do do. And I said that so that you'd remember it. It's not just about what you don't do. It's about what you do do. Love is about doing something. Another Sedaris principle, principle 10, love works. So Moses isn't just unselfish or humble or something like that. He's actually generous, and he gives, and he loves his people. He acts as a bridge to take God's presence to them. 
This is the call on every Christian. Whatever you've experienced, pass it on to somebody else, the next generation, to your entire family, to your entire community. Begins with unselfishness, but it must move out in actual doing of something. And Moses does that. Verse 5. Look at this. Verse 5. 35.5. What's it say? So after he's brought the congregation together, he's built that bridge. He says, now take from among you a contribution to the Lord. To the Lord. So, generosity is always to the Lord, to God, to Yahweh, to Jesus Christ your Savior. Even in in giving today, when you give to the church, you're not giving it to Sedaris, you're not giving it to me, you're not giving it just to the church, you're giving it to God. You're giving it to, not to an organization, not to a not-profit, but you're giving it to Yahweh. So this is an essential step. You must ask the question, is this nonprofit, is this church, is this ministry one of God's projects, or is it something else? This can be difficult to determine at times, because not every church is one of God's projects. This is why prayer becomes so essential. God, how do you want me to be generous? To whom? To what organization? Is the church that I'm attending, is this one of your projects? Make sure he affirms to you that this is something I am doing because your generosity is to God himself. Also, verse 35 continues. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Whoever is of a generous heart. Other translations of the Hebrew would say, whoever's heart is willing. So the heart matters. There's no coercion. God invites us to partner with him. God invites us to partner with his projects in the world. He wants a willing partner. So if your heart is not willing, don't give. Does that mean that if you're like, well, my heart's not willing, I guess I'm off the hook forever. No, it means that your question will be different than that person of a willing heart. You're not asking the question, should I give or how much should I give or to what project should I give? If your heart is not yet willing, your question needs to be, why is my heart as it is and it's not like the heart of those others that I'm in community with? Maybe that's you. Maybe your heart isn't willing. Why is that? Or a better question is, seems to be I want to be a part of God's work in the world, but he doesn't want me to give if I'm not willing. How do you cultivate a generous heart? How do you cultivate a willing heart towards the things that God is doing in the world? That's where we move next. I'm going to present to you four prerequisites necessary for your heart to be cultivated towards willingness, towards generosity to God's projects. Number one, love for God. Now you say, I might be, I have love for God. What I'm talking about here is deep gratitude for His saving grace in your life and in the world. So think about the Israelites. They just experienced a rescue from God 
from slavery and bondage and oppression. Then they experienced God committing to them even after they rebelled and turned and worshipped a golden calf. You see, they see His deep, abiding grace. They recognize that they did nothing to deserve it. That in fact they fall short again and again and again. That their sin is terrible. That their hearts are broken and that God still chooses them. They have a deep gratitude, which is the first prerequisite. The second is an understanding that God is commanding generosity. So eight times in the passage we just read, we see the word commanded. Our obedience to God's commands are part, probably the biggest part, of how we love God back. We can't part the Red Sea, we can't bring on plagues to to release people, but we can obey God And that's the way we reciprocate through action our love to Him. So, when you understand that God's commanding and you have a desire to love Him back, it will lead to obedience to the command. So we have to understand that God is commanding generosity. Number three, we must remember that God gave us everything that we already have. Turn with me real quick. Back to chapter 12, because you might forget this because it was a while ago. Chapter 12, verse 33 says this. This is right before, or right as the last plague sweeps through the land and the people are about to walk out of Israel. They don't have to sneak out, they just walk out because God has paved the way. It says this The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead if they stay. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders, and the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver, gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So this is a strange part of the story where God moves in the heart of the Egyptians So this people group, as they're leaving, just simply asks, hey, can I just have all your gold (laughs) and your earrings and your jewelry and your nice stuff? And and God prepared the Egyptians' heart and they gave it to them. And then later in life, later in the story, God asked for that stuff back. God gave it to them and then he asked for it back for the building of his tent. They got it. They realized the whole reason we have all this gold and all these ears, we were slaves. Why do we even have this stuff? Don't get used to it. It's not yours. Here's the principle. You are all renting everything you have from God. You think you own it, but you're just renting. (laughs) I was with my brother Tim at a wedding last weekend, and we just walk into really fancy places. And I'd say to Tim, don't worry, I know the king, he owns this place. We'd walk in, act like we own the place, at least act like we know who owns the place. Nobody ever says anything to you. If you just walk in, Thinking in your head, I know the king, you're all renting this from him. You can go anywhere you want. <laughs> Ask Tim, he knows about this. He was a little uncomfortable at first. He got used to it. We're all renting everything that we have from God. Principle four, or prerequisite four. You must know what God is using your contribution for. This is the part where the head connects to the heart. God doesn't want to just give you. He doesn't just want blind generosity. He wants you to understand the projects he's doing in the world so that you can give with your heart, your heart and your head connected. 
So did the Israelites understand why God was asking them to contribute it? Oh yeah. They knew exactly why they were giving it. Moses told them for the construction of God's tent in their midst. So they were on board with that. They liked that idea of God being with them. God says, use your hands to build it. They're willing to give their labor. They're willing to give their talents, their skills, because they knew what they were giving to. And so they had all four of these prerequisites. So how many of the Israelites had willing hearts? How many of them had these four prerequisites? Turn with me to chapter 36. Chapter 36, let's see. Here we go. Chapter 36, verse 3. And Moses called Bezalel and Hohelab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred up in them to do the work, and they received from Moses all the contribution of the people of Israel that they had brought for doing the work of the sanctuary. Look at this. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning, so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, quote, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Overflowing generosity. It just, they just kept going. Their hearts were willing because they had the four prerequisites. Wow, good for Israel. So what does that mean for our generosity of heart and hand today? Well, I think the same four prerequisites are required today if we're going to have overflowing generosity. Unfortunately, the kind of overflow we've just read about in 36 does not characterize the church, at least in this country. Why? I think it's because there's a problem, there's a brokenness, there's a disconnect in each of these four categories in the church, in our time, in our place. So I want to look at them one by one. And I will say this, I'll say this when we get there, but the fourth, I think, is the biggest breakdown, that we don't know why we contribute anymore. Very clear here. What they're giving to, we wonder now, what are we giving to? But I'm going to go through all four because I think there's a, there's, a, there's a clarity issue on all four. So, number one, love for God. Like I said, many Christians love God. But I fear that there's not a deep, overwhelming gratitude for God's saving grace. Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed in Nazi Germany for trying to assassinate Hitler, uh, a great theologian and pastor, he, he coined a term called cheap grace. He said it's rampant in the church, cheap grace, which is that we don't consider the great cost paid by God by the giving of his son to hang on a cross, to absorb our wrath, and die in our place. We don't look at that and see the cost of that. And so we walk through our life thinking, oh, God's grace, it's so cheap. And so we're not willing to give or sacrifice ourselves. You could say this, we've got cheap hearts because we've bought the lie of cheap grace. 
what God has done for us in sending His Son Jesus is of immeasurable worth. That if you ever feel like now you get it, you've got a mile and a million miles to go to understand the depth of His saving love. So we've got a problem. Lord, help us understand what you've done for us through the cross of Christ and in the resurrection of the dead. Number two, I think that we've changed our mind regarding the Lord commanding generosity. We say, well, God doesn't really command us to give anymore. Jesus was was a pretty nice guy. He would never command us to give. Are we sure about that? Why do we think that? Who gave us that idea? Where did it come from? Did the Scriptures teach us that no longer in the New Covenant that God is commanding our generosity? What did Jesus actually say about this issue? So we're confused. So I just say this, we need to think and study really hard about this command issue. Allie and I, my wife and I, are convinced that God still commands. Commands financial and skill investment in his projects. So sometimes we don't always feel like giving, but we know he's commanded and we want to be obedient to him because we love him. We've got a short essay on our website, on our giving tab, that you can read about this. It might help you start thinking about what is God commanding now that Jesus has come? How is it related to the commands of the Old Testament? Go read that if you've never read that. Think about that deeply. Talk about that with your spouse or with your roommates, your friends. What is God commanding? Spoiler alert, we'll say in that, and and I believe this, and my wife Allie believes this, we still think the Old Testament idea of a tithe, which just means a tenth or 10%, is still a really good benchmark to aspire to. And actually, when we look to Jesus, it seems like he's actually, in a lot of ways, overturning old simplistic ideas and asking even more of his people. Like he doesn't give us like 5% more, He just tells a story about people who had nothing, like the widow's might, and she gave it all because she got God's love for her. So what is the Lord commanding? Meaning, how is our action in this area of our life pleasing to the Lord? What would please him? And what pleases him is us trusting him and obeying him and being like him. What would that look like? Number three, we seem to forget that all we have comes from God. Particularly the American spirit, the ideas of private property, the tenets of capitalism, the glorification of work ethic, leads us into this overpowering idea of ownership rights. Where did your skill come from? Where did your work ethic come from? Where did your intelligence come from? Where did the raw materials you use to create wealth come from? I'm not so sure you had as much to do with your success as you think you did. We all might want to reconsider that question. It might help us loosen our grip on our stuff. Number four, and like I said, this is the one I think that that perhaps is, is most to blame 
for the lack of overflowing generosity amongst the people of God today, at least in this place, in this time. Do we know why God is asking us to give to his church still today? Like, what is God using my contribution for? This place doesn't even have air conditioning. Where is the money going? I just want to point your attention. I moved the fan. Ryan moved it to face me. I said, Ryan, not with what I'm about to preach, brother. (laughs) Let's move it towards the people. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like, what's it going? Like, the tabernacle, it was very clear where my dollars and my skill were going. Because see the finished product. Does that mean like this is a perfect text for church building funds, capital campaigns to raise money? You'll see in a second, I don't think so. So, so there are a lot of churches now. Do we need more churches? Does the church really need my offering? This is a totally fair question, and I just got to own it for pastors and preachers everywhere. We've done a terrible job of explaining what God's asking you to contribute to. That's not on you. We've epically failed. That's on us. So let me try to help clear it up. Okay, you ready for this? Turn with me to the New Testament, uh, 2 Corinthians. We're going to have it on the screen for you as well. 2 Corinthians. And see a a parallel passage. The Apostle Paul is applying Moses' shiny face now in the New Covenant after Jesus Christ. I want you to see what he says. Here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who is in Christ, who always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, and the other a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many, peddling the word of God, but as men sincere as commissioned by God in the, in, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So what he's saying is, Now, when we as the apostles go out, and as Christians go out, we become the aroma of Christ, which everybody now is saying, it's not smelling so good. Me me included. And yet, God is telling us through the apostle Paul that this is the way people come to know about who he is. Remember, we talked about in the temple, there's the offering of incense, which makes the, te- the, the tabernacle, the tent of God, smell beautiful. Now, Paul's saying, it's the Christians who become that incense to the world. Now, some people smell it and they say, get out of here, I don't like that. That's death unto death. They smell death unto death. Others will smell life leading to life. So what is he saying? He's saying now, in the same way that the tabernacle drew people into the presence of God, now Christians themselves draw people into the presence and the knowledge of God. He goes on. Are we beginning to commend ourselves? This is uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Or do, or, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter to Christ delivered by us, written, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone like Moses had coming down the mountain, 
That was the testimony of God, but as tablets written on the human heart. So just like Moses put the tablets in the ark that was in the tabernacle, now you and me have those letters written on our hearts so that when people encounter us, they get to read the word of God in us. See what he's saying? This is wild. Keep going. Verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, nor the letter that kills, but the Spirit that gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in the letters on stone, he's talking about Moses here, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze on Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? You think Moses' shiny face was cool? Have you met the Ottingers? Have you met the Pharaohs? The shiny face of God that Moses had is now on each and every one of our faces. And even more glory. This is incredible. What could be? Verse 9. For if there is glory in the ministry of the condemnation, that is the ministry of the Old Testament law because no one can fulfill it, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once was glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end, that's the law of Moses, came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. That is the law of Jesus Christ. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who had to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when, the, when, uh, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having the ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus, our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and I'll add, to the whole world. Amen? What is he saying? This is so important. In the same way that the physical tabernacle for the people of Israel brought the presence of God into the midst so that all people had access, in the same way God is putting his light into your heart. He's making you an offering of incense so that you can go out into the world and be the light of the knowledge of God to all people so they might experience the presence of God. Everyone who's invited the Spirit of God to live in them now becomes many tabernacles. One of many. You're not the only one. It's not only up to you, but you get to be a mini tabernacle. That is what you're being invited into. The presence fills you. People can smell God. 
and understand who he is. They can read the testimony that is written on your heart. They can see the light of God in your face if you let him transform you. It's an invitation to be attentive meeting spread a million times over across this whole globe. So what are you giving to when you give to the church? Do you know what you're giving to? Is it clear yet? You're giving to a tabernacle training center. The job of Sedaris Church is to train you to become the best tabernacle that you can be. The best tabernacle. We're investing in you. Your investment in Sedaris is an investment in yourselves to become the best knowledge-bearing, light-giving, aroma-spreading tabernacle of Jesus Christ in this world. Now, we're going to do it in two ways. We're going to have new construction, and we're going to take people that never were tabernacles, and we're going to make them tabernacles. That's evangelism. Then we're going to take tabernacles who need some serious remodeling, some touch-ups, some updates. They got some funky plumbing, and we're going to fix them up so that they can be the most glorifying, God-knowledge-giving tabernacles in the world. This is what God invites you to give to. This is what he's giving to. This place is helpful. Church buildings can be helpful, but they're only a tool to do the training up of the saints so that they might be the presence bearers of God in the world. It's beautiful. And you see this in the great commission of Jesus Christ. The very last thing he said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. I'm going to read it to you. All of, Jesus said this. It's the last thing he said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not me, but Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples, translation, many tabernacles of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, translation, usher in the formative personal presence of God into their lives so that they can experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we then celebrate through the physical baptism in water. If you're interested in being baptized, we're doing that in July. Email us or, or sign up on the website and we'll have a conversation. So that's the first thing. Usher in the presence of the Holy Spirit because you'll never become a tabernacle without the glory of God shining on you. So ask for the baptism of the Spirit. God, overwhelm me with your Spirit. Second thing, Jesus says, teaching them to observe, you could say practice, all that I have commanded you. Translation, show them my ways through formative instruction. So this is the two things that the church should be doing. Ushering in the presence so that people might experience the presence of God and it might transform them through worship, through being around the saints, and instruct them and teach them Jesus' ways. Because Jesus is building through his church many tabernacles to be sent around the world And Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that at one point, all people, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all languages, all cultures will have a tabernacle that's come near to them, and they might choose to worship the one true God. So will you invest in this project? That's what God's asking you. Will you invest in this project? Okay, now I know what the project is. Will you invest in it with your financial contribution and with your skill and talent contribution? Will you invest? We'd love to help you. Like, 
Part of the training is helping you think about obeying this command. Part of the training is helping you think through what is God doing and how can I use my gifts. Ryan and I and others in this church, the deacons, the elders, would love to help you figure out how you can contribute. You don't have to figure that out on your own. It comes, like everything, through great conversation. Reach out to us. Ask us, would you help me figure out how to do this? Because we believe when you do, you will experience two things. The joy of partnership with the one true God. It's an unbelievable joy, i got to tell you. I'm sweating like a pig, and I'm, I'm feeling the joy of partnering with God, getting to teach his word and talk to his people. And the satisfaction of being included in God's plan to make ends meet. You get to be a part of making the ends. Genesis to Revelation. You get to be a part of making those ends meet. Heaven reuniting with earth. You get to be a part of that. God's invited you to do that. You get to be a part of that. And I want you to experience that. I don't want you just to think of Jesus as Savior and one day I get to experience. You get to experience now, making ends meet and being written into his story of heaven coming to earth. 